At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash grad school. It keeps it alive. It keeps the fire burning from what you remember and hopes somehow that you can return. It's partly so that, that young people today can, can, can taste some of that, taste what it was that we fell in love with. I mean, young people fall in love with football now in a different way, you know, through technology, which is great, but... I want them to fall in love with football the way that I fell in love with it too, which was as a collective experience. And I think that is something that is rarer and rarer, especially for young people who can't really afford to go. And, and that's what I want to see. That's it. Nostalgia does play a really important role in, in, in I guess, keeping you on the right track. Into it, it, that, it sounds crazy to say, like nostalgia somehow can also lead you down towards navel-gazing and thinking that the past was best. But... Um, but, I mean, it's the future that I'm thinking of, and, and we can learn from the past. That was James Montague, and I'm Joe Devine. Welcome to Whiteboard Football Extra. Today, uh, I'm joined by James for the final instalment of our Nostalgia series. James is an incredibly well-travelled writer and journalist, covering football from Essex all the way to the Middle East. His latest book was released in August, The Billionaire's Club, in which he discusses football's richest owners, how they made their fortunes, how they keep them, and how this, in some cases, can be seen to be poisoning the sport. James is also working with us at UMAXIT, chaptering a few of those stories as videos on our YouTube channel. The first three are out already as part of our Meet the Billionaires playlist, and the fourth on Sheikh Mansour is out later this week on Friday. Before we get started with the podcast, there's a couple of things I want to mention. Uh, firstly, thank you to everyone who's been commenting on our videos and rating them on iTunes. It really helps elevate us through various algorithms. So if you haven't already had a chance to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, particularly, um, and if you want to support us, doing that would be really useful. So if anyone could take the time, we'd really appreciate that. Um, also, I should mention that due to a bit of a scheduling change on YouTube, the podcasts will now be released in video form a little bit later in the week. So if you're listening on YouTube, it'll probably be coming out on a Tuesday or Wednesday now. Um, but it will always be available in audio form on iTunes and SoundCloud as of Sunday evenings, GMT time, probably around 10pm, 11pm. The idea being that it's always there and ready for, for Monday morning. So if you want to tune in late on a Sunday or early on a Monday, the best way to do that is to head over to iTunes or to SoundCloud and listen rather than watch. Finally, uh, you might have noticed also at the end of some of our recent videos, there's a little stamp on the end card saying TIFO coming soon. Now, there'll be a bit more information on this in the next couple of weeks. We're going to make a video about it as well, so, so we try and reach as many people as possible. Um, but I just want to clarify now, that we will be changing our name uh, towards the end of October from UMAXIT Football to TIFO. We're also launching a new website. Now, there are a few reasons that we're changing our name. 
We'll explain uh, all about that in the next couple of weeks. But really, I'm just letting everyone know now, and I probably will continue to do this, so apologies if you hear me say this a number of times over the next couple of weeks. I just want to let everybody know now so that we negate uh, the situation where people download a podcast from Tifo Football and have no idea who that is or why you're subscribed uh, to them. So everyone's remaining the same, but we are changing our name. Uh, Anyway, now that's all done. Thanks for downloading the podcast. I hope you enjoy my chat with James. Incidentally, he will also be our guest next week as we take some time to talk more about those videos and uh, on the on the football owners that we worked on together. So thank you very much for humouring my long and boring intro and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm interested in finding out what role nostalgia plays in people's relationships with football and how impactful it can be on that relationship. Now, it strikes me, James, that the most... Uh, that most football fans develop their passion as a child and often their fondest memories of the sport or their interaction with the sport comes from those earlier years. Um, and that also reminds me of, you know, for example, people often say that, well, people's musical tastes change. They often develop a relationship with particular artists in their teenage years and they form a bond with those that, you know, stays with them as they age. And I wonder if that's the same for football. Um, and so I want to ask, you know, a few different people, a few questions about this to, uh, about their relationship with football, you know, now and in the past. I suppose the first one to ask is, what are your fondest memories of football? Well, I mean, some of the earliest memories um, actually come quite late. I mean, I can remember we, with my family, we grew up in Essex and uh, there wasn't a whole lot of money. So there wasn't um, the opportunity to go to see West Ham, which was the family team. My father's a West Ham fan. His mother and father were West Ham fans. They came from East London. Um, But it was actually quite, even in the cheaper kind of late 80s, early 90s, it was still kind of too expensive a day out to to do it. So we never really went to watch football, apart from going to see Chelmsford City occasionally. Um, You know, so my early memories of football were actually sitting with my dad and listening to it on the radio so all my early football memories, because we couldn't afford, we didn't. If it was on television uh, it, back in the day of the, when the BBC and ITV had it, that was one thing. But later on, when it was pay per view television, um, you know, my memories as as, an, as a teenager are sitting around with my dad, listening, listening to radio, listening to football being played on the radio, and it's. I think it gives you a different perspective on the game because, of course, you're not you're not watching it; you're hearing the action rather than seeing it. Um, it doesn't mean that I didn't see football, I didn't watch football, but it's um, it's I, to this day I still, if I if I'm given the choice sometimes between listening to a football game or watching a football game, I'll, I'll often choose to listen. Um, and I think that's that's with all the technology we have, I and mean, I think that's quite an odd thing, odd thing to happen. But um, it, so my my early memories are kind of coloured by that. But then um, I would start going. I mean, I had quite a strange. Not upbringing. I, mean, I had a very loving family, but um, you know, from the age of eleven onwards, I was, I was a pretty independent uh, person and kind of running around with older friends and getting into all sorts of hijinks and trouble. Uh, but I would, I mean, it, it's a different era now. But I would end up going down to from the age of kind of eleven, twelve onwards, going down to Upton Park bowling ground on my own uh, with a couple of friends. And so, the nostalgia I have is really the very end of days of a type of football which people really talk about as a kind of lost era, which is, you know, the terrace as we remember it, you know, as, as, as older people remember it. I feel like I might be one of the youngest people who can actually remember the standing regularly, at, you know, at the North Bank. And 
you know, I mean, I could, obviously everybody of a certain age, I was 10 when, when Hillsborough happened. And it was, you know, it was one of those, I think, with the Omaha bombing um, and maybe the Zeebrugge disaster. It was one of, those, one of those news events that at whatever age you are, you can remember it, like where you were when Diana died, you know. So we remembered it. And, it, and there was a feeling that things had changed. And uh, going to West Ham then, it was, it was really the last years of this kind of terrorist culture that had spawned. I mean, all sorts of violence and, um, you know, a, a terrible... Uh, kind of atmosphere in the grounds but when I went to the games it was it was exciting it was dangerous it was um, you know it was camaraderie I didn't even really know anybody apart from the few kind of groups of people I went there with two or three people I would go take all my money that I'd kind of gathered through fair means and foul over the week it was five pounds to get in and uh, the train fare and, uh, you know, you, you, you need some money for a bottle of Coke and maybe a burger. It, I remember it being horrifically expensive. I remember never having any money. And so from a very young age, I always had a job that could help me to do this. And you'd go down there and it was the singing. And it, it, there was no... It's very difficult to kind of explain. So when you think about it in hindsight... It probably was quite dangerous and it probably wasn't a pretty nice atmosphere, a very nice atmosphere. But I just, I absolutely fell in love with it. And that's kind of stayed with me for the rest of my life. And I remember one game in particular, I was too young really to, to, to really understand the complexities and the understand. It was the first game after Bobby Moore died uh, and we played Wolves. And we were then in the, in the, because we, we didn't start off in the Premier League. We, we, we'd been relegated the season before. Uh, and this was our season that we we kind of came back into the Premier League. So we had a, we had a we had a great season that season. I remember going to this game and it, remembering it was it was it was history, but and it was historic and people were crying. And this person meant a lot to this club. I really was too young to understand it. And I I remember I've looked back now. I have all the programs and uh, you know and everything. And you know it, I, I kind of stopped going when the North Bank was was eventually knocked down because it, it it definitely did price me out the game and the, the the type of experience it was did change so my nostalgia is oral i mean in terms of listening to football but also a kind of uh c- catching the tail end of of something which very few people i think who are now under 30 Kind of, or under even under forty, truly experience in its in its in its pomp, and um, you know, and of course, grounds needed to be. I mean, the North Bank was a death trap. I can't believe, like, I mean, there were sometimes it was proper dangerous, but um, football grounds needed to be, you know, updated, and and many of these stadiums hadn't been touched for for decades, and so the Taylor report was correct in that in that respect. But I feel that what's happening with football now is that we're trying to get back to trying to capture some of that kind of passion and togetherness and sound and fury that is kind of absent now within Premier League football grounds in particular. I mean, you still find it lower in lower divisions and you still find it in many European leagues, but in terms of my perspective from kind of top level English football is, is kind of missing. And so, yeah, I have a extremely nostalgic vision of of what it can feel like to be you know in this very small space with thousands of other people um swearing at people <laughs> so. 
And you talk about togetherness there, and that kind of leads me on to my next question. Um, and I wanted to ask, when you first started watching football or listening, as you've said, um, I wanted to ask about the people that you shared that experience with. So you mentioned your dad already listening to it. You also mentioned going to the football more so with your friends. Do you think that those relationships informed your relationship with football or vice versa? And and if that's no longer the case now, if you don't listen to football with your dad on the radio, or if you don't go to football with that group of friends, has that changed your relationship with the sport? I, I mean, absolutely. The way that my dad viewed uh, football and life and music has definitely... Uh, completely influenced how I have as well um, you know it, not even down to the medium but the, the, the type of football that he would be interested in he loves he, I mean he's still alive I'm not going to talk about him in the past tense but he loves to this day we talk on the phone and you know he's, he's still watching football not on Teletext because Teletext doesn't exist anymore but watching it like he's got Sky now he's just retired so he's got Sky but he'd rather watch the football or the cricket like as text on the BBC, listening to it on the radio. <laughs> and, you know, but it's more than that. It's, it's also, um, and I guess supporting a yo-yo club like West Ham as well, who never had much success. I mean, I can't, we've never won anything in my lifetime. I mean, we won the FA Cup, but I mean, I was nine months old, so I, I don't count that. Um, but, you know, um, the way he viewed and the, continues to view sport is really he'll watch anything. He loves any kind of competitive sport. But it is always about the, the little guy. It's always about the underdog. Like, for instance, it's very, it was very common to have a Scottish team, you know, and most people would have a Rangers or Celtic. Uh, but he grew up in a very, you know, from a Catholic family in East London. So when he was a kid, he chose, a, you know, to get away from the kind of the... the, the sectarian politics and go for a team that nobody would support that that would never win anything so now i i followed him and now i look for the score of Brecon city who kind of mm. yo-yo club with second third division in, in scottish football and yeah. so that has absolutely informed how not only do i look at football i look at sport but also in my writing as well mm. it's interesting that you, you mentioned um, bobby moore as well um because I'm interested in the idea that people form relationships with players, particularly players who've been at one club for a very long time, um, or managers. In fact, Alex Ferguson is probably a very good example of this. Uh, I think people uh, develop relationships with someone like Alex Ferguson almost as if they're a family figure. And I've heard people talk about this before, that Ferguson, as an example, that you know they didn't always like him. Sometimes he wasn't very nice, but... Uh, he he felt in that way like he was a member of the family, as you might feel about your dad or your mum or, or whoever, you know. And I wonder if those sorts of relationships are integral to people actually enjoying sport. You mentioned Bobby Moore there. You weren't old enough at the time to really understand the impact maybe that he had on, on, on the crowd or the people around you, but you said that you saw people who were very upset. I wonder if those sorts of relationships or feelings about people involved in the game are integral to your enjoyment of it or whether you can just enjoy it as this aesthetic uh, sport taking place in front of you, devoid of, of emotion in that way? I'm, I'm, I've got quite a controversial opinion on this, which is that um, often the least important um, people in football are uh, the people on the pitch, which sounds completely anathema to what most people think because they think actually the most important is the football on the pitch, which is what we enjoy watching. But when, you, when it becomes something this experience that you go to then 
you know, it's about the, about the people that you go with. It's a ritual, you know, and, um, you know, you could have, you could go to a Sunday league game and a football's terrible or a Premier League game and the football's amazing. But what it is, is ritual. It's ritual for, for an event, for your family, for your loved ones. Um, and so often when I think of going football as a young, I mean, I was probably, I, could, I couldn't see anything. You know, I was, I was 11 years old. Standing on the north back, I could barely see the football. I remember, I remember once. Uh, I think Tottenham beat West Ham four nil or four one on on Boxing Day, and I could just about make out. Um, Sol Campbell was a, was an up and coming player then, and they played him up front. I think he even started off as a striker, and <clears throat> it's the only thing I remember of the game. It's the only thing I could see. Mm. You know, so in a way, going to those early games it was, it was you, you weren't seeing, you weren't watching football, you weren't seeing the game. Well, that's an that's an interesting point, actually, because the, my next question is is I'm going to ask you if you still like football. But what you've made me think of there with your descriptions of yourself as at eleven on the North Bank, you can't really see anything. It reminds me of the way that some film directors uh, will choose camera angles if they want to um, increase uh, the tension or thrill or this sense of you know wonderment that you can't quite see. They'll lots of close up shots in between people in crowds so you can't really see what's actually happening um do, i mean obviously your experience of football as an 11 year old on the north bank is going to be very different to how it is now um do, do you do you like your relationship with football now do you still like football i love football and um i've certainly come to love the actual game of football you know to to, to actually watch it to sit down and watch it which is something actually from the beginning you'd listen to football um, you would go and be and experience football, but actually sitting down and watching it was actually you know it was quite a rare thing to do because I mean we didn't have it on television. You might go to a pub occasionally, England internationals. Um, so you know I've learnt, you know I've I, you know I love the game of football, but what was probably I mean I'm lucky I have a job where I do what I love, which is going and watching fairly obscure football matches around the world that have usually some you know story underneath it, which is kind of says something a bit wider about the world so I mean I had an illuminating discussion with I remember I went to I did a story about Bhutan and the the uh, the national football team was having their first ever World Cup campaign this was in 2015 I think it was and I managed to get the third playing Sri Lanka and I remember going to Sri Lanka to go and meet the Bhutan team and the Sri Lankan team for this very odd football match uh, very few people there but it was the first qualification for the 2018 World Cup and uh, Bhutan won their first ever game but I, in the in the lead up I spent a bit of time there was a Serbian coach for the, for the Sri Lanka team and I asked him a kind of a similar question uh, do, you, do you you know do you like football because he's travelled around a lot and he seemed to be very stressed about everything and it was like oh you know it's a job and you know gave a very kind of passive answer to it and, and he asked me the same question and I thought every every match day I have the same excitement I pack my bags I put my microphone there I walked. To, I walked to the ground, and the hours walk to the ground where people are arriving, and the excitement is building, and you see the fans, and sometimes there might be like a frisson of danger, but you know there's an excitement there too. That has not waned. The experience of seeing football is still something that, even at the age of 38, is is incredible to me still. You know, and um as long as i keep having that and it there's no it's not diminishing even though i've just written a book which basically looks at how money is poisoning football mm. and the world um there is there's still that um 
there's still that kind of magic there and you know it, it, it just hasn't faded I still, I still absolutely love it and I still love physically going to football games and even if just the ebb and flow it's just this, there's a brilliant theatre to every single match it's that there's no two games are alike um, even in a terrible nil-nil draw there's, there's, <laughs> there's something still magical in its, in its brutal boringness but there's everything's got you know uh, every game has its own internal dynamic and it, it, it's so fresh for me still every game every, every country I go to to watch it there's a uniformity to it I suppose whether you're in Bhutan or Bromley but you know, it's 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 still it's still as fresh as as kind of wet paint to me. You mentioned uh, you've just written a book about how money money is poisoning football. Uh, that leads me on to my next question because a lot of the people I'm talking to about this are journalists, and one of the other ways uh, I want to understand how people's relationship with the sport is affected is through the work that they do. Um, and you said that it hasn't really changed your uh, you know the, the sort of what you're doing hasn't really changed your opinion on football has it had any impact on the way that you feel about the sport um i suppose it's made me a little bit more informed about what's going on um and certainly my experiences being i guess it's a little bit like being of the last generation that remembers what it was like before the internet you know uh, the internet's given us many great things and information at our fingertips but also there's a there's a kind of sadness because you can remember what it was like when you didn't have that and there wasn't the pressure to share there wasn't the pressure to be um all out there in the open there was privacy and there was um there was there was a, a room and a space to make mistakes now you can say the internet's been a fantastic thing which it has on the other hand there's something that we've lost and i feel that that's the same with my experience with football because i caught the tail end of this terrorist culture that you know i can remember what was lost of course the it's 25 years from the you know, the start of the Premier League and it's been phenomenally successful in modernising the game. I mean, I still remember racial abuse. I mean, I remember going to, I think 1995, going to West Ham, Norwich, you know, and, and I was in, you know, the, the stand, uh, it, was, it was, I was a young hammer then, so they were giving away free tickets to young hammers to sit, to sit at the game. And I went with my dad, although I was, I think I was then 16, but I still qualified to get a young hammers ticket. And, you know, I remember this, this man standing up. Um, we, we must, his son must have been 11, you know, and just inches from Rule Fox's face, you know, just hurling the most vile racist abuse. You know, so it was still normal, even at the beginning of that era. And so what it has done, the Premier League, in terms of, you know, really modernising um, a culture and, and a kind of uh, the infrastructure, I think, is, is great. But... Having had this experience, it also makes me realise that, that there has to be a middle way. There has to be a way that we can incorporate what it was that made football uh, great. And in a way, what, what kind of modern football is still kind of living off of. And it's selling that kind of that passion and that uh, kind of that kind of culture, which doesn't really exist anymore. And if you go to Premier League games now, the atmosphere is kind of dire in a lot of places. You know, because you just, you know, the, the type of people are changing and the kind of, it's very, it's, it's, you're almost compartmentalized if you're, um, you're almost compartmentalized if you're, if you're sitting in a, in a, in your own separate spaces, you know, there isn't this kind of swaying, um, connected kind of almost songs erupting through osmosis kind of feeling. And, 
you know, having had that experience makes me think that there is some way we can get back to it. And we can see that with the, with the, with the safe standing. I think that it, that's the, that's the, will be the best development that's happened in football in the past kind of 15, 20 years. Because I think that can bring back some of that whilst also have kind of taken the poison out of, I think, what, some of the worst aspects of terrorist culture. James, you've got a new book coming out uh, in the next few weeks as well. Do you want to tell us what it's called and what it's about? Yeah, it's called the, the Billionaires Club, The Unstoppable Rise of Football's Super Rich Owners. And um, comes out on the 24th of August. And it basically looks at who are the people that are driving change in football. And for me, one of the... We talk about the money in football. We talk about agents. We talk about wages. We talk about players. We talk about TV money. But actually, owners are the people who have the real power and who have you know, driving some of the major changes in football in the past kind of 25 years, if not longer. And it seemed to me that nobody had ever really, that we kind of accept them that they're there, they just arrive and they've invested in our clubs and, you know, some of them are good, some of them are bad. But for them to have got there, often uh, they have done some pretty bad things and have been involved in some pretty shady uh, operations. And I wanted to find out why the billionaires in particular, why the super rich, why they're investing in football, um, how they made their money, and you know what what we can learn about about that you know and i think that, that these people are shaping football um, and the world in a way that i think it even is probably more important than technology and so i've kind of profiled them without ever meeting any of them uh because i couldn't it was obviously impossible to meet them because in many cases these are some of the most powerful secretive men and it's mainly men um who uh you know so they, they have no interest and it would be it's not in their interest to talk to a journalist so i went and spoke to the people who have kind of lost out um as these people had made their fortunes and through them kind of told the story of how how they got to where they were and what and what what the future lies for football um it's not a particularly optimistic book i don't think but um <laughs> but i think it's pretty truthful and you know inequality is the great issue of of the age and and you know, I've tried to try and tell a part of that story through football. There's a slightly abrupt ending to the podcast there due to my very poor editing skills, uh, but that is the end. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to James Montague for joining us. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, he will also be our guest next week. So if you have any questions about any of the videos we've released regarding football's richest owners, including the Roman Abramovich one, there's another couple out there as well. Um, you can comment on YouTube or you know send us a tweet. Uh, incidentally, you can follow us on Twitter at UMAX at Football. Um, that will be changing in the next few weeks as we change our name, but I'll let everybody know when that does. Uh, you can also follow James on Twitter. I don't have his handle to hand, but he's quite a popular man, uh, I believe, so I think he should be quite easy to find. He's worth uh, a follow, though. I think he's just come back from North Korea and tweeted a bunch of interesting photographs from there. Um, so thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch up next week. My name's Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini Pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe.